Welcome to ASCP's podcast, Inside the Lab, where we discuss anything and everything that concerns today's laboratory professionals and pathologists. My name is Dr. Dan Milner, and I'm the Chief Medical Officer at ASCP. Hey, everyone. My name is Kelly Swales, and I'm also one of your co-hosts. I'm an ASCP certified medical technologist. I work in the publications department at ASCP. And today we're going to be talking about a so-called zebra entity and breast pathology, breast implant associated ALCL. We've got a couple of great guests lined up and I'll let them introduce themselves. My name is Kirill Diabichev and I am currently finishing up my molecular genetic pathology fellowship at MD Anderson and I passed a hematopathology fellow at the same institution about to start my directorship hematopathology position at UTMB. Denise? Hi, this is Dr. Denise Pecker. I'm a faculty at Emory University, Department of Pathology and Laboratory Medicine. I do hematopathology and molecular pathology, and I'm, I'm an associate professor. Excellent. Thank you guys so much uh, for joining us. First off, I just have a little bit of housekeeping I need to get out of the way. CME and CMLE will be available for listening to this podcast in the ASCP store. The American Society for Clinical Pathology is accredited by the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education to provide continuing medical education for physicians. ASCP designates this enduring material for a maximum of one AMA PRA Category 1 credit. Physicians should only claim credit commensurate with the extent of their participation in the activity. All right, well, now that's out of the way, so uh, let's, let's get this ball rolling. Um, most of our listeners, I think, will know this, but I'm just going to mention it for folks who might not. In medical circles, there's a saying, uh, when you hear hoofbeats, look for horses, not zebras. It's kind of a reminder that, generally speaking, when people present with a set of symptoms, the diagnosis will be something a bit more common. But, as the title of this podcast suggests, sometimes it is a zebra. Sometimes patients will have a rare disease or a syndrome, and we also need to keep this in mind. So today we're going to be talking about one such zebra, breast implant associated ALCL. Kirill, I believe you have a few cases to present. Can you uh, tell us a little bit about them? Yeah, absolutely. But first, I would like to thank you and ACP for giving us an opportunity to talk on this uh, podcast about such a unique neoplasm as uh, breast implant ALCL. We hope this topic will bring more attention and will decrease the pathologist anxiety when they will face this challenging diagnosis. I believe Dennis will uh, agree that breast implant-associated anaplastic latch cell lymphoma is very unique lymphoma, lymphoma which was brought to us by technological progress in uh, plastic surgery, which is use of silicone breast implants. It took us for a while to identify the etiology of this uh, unique entity. This neoplasm brought uh, to us new type of anatomical specimen, which we had to learn how to grow and uh, process in the right way, the way which led us to diagnose this lymphoma correctly. So I would like to present two cases with uh, complete different outcomes. These cases underline the importance of the right diagnosis and uh, therapeutic approaches for this neoplasm. The first case is a case with a fortunate good outcome. Is a 41-year-old female with a previously previous history of bilateral breast augmentation performed at outside institution seven years ago. 
the patient develops some discomfort in her left chest wall, increased swelling in the same area. She underwent ultrasound showing an abnormality in the inferior lateral aspect. The patient underwent seroma drainage, partial capsulectomy, and replacement of breast implants in outside institution. The diagnosis revealed ALK-negative for ALCL in the fluid and fibrotic tissue, which was biopsy. The patient transferred her care to MD Anderson Cancer Center for a second opinion, and here patient underwent radical resection or total capsulectomy for her left breast, breast implant, and uh, she had consequent bilateral total capsulectomies. She had the resection of uh, left axial lymph nodes as well. The patient was diagnosed uh, with breast implant anaplastic large T-cell lymphoma, which was involved in the capsule and lymph nodes were found to be negative. So after this surgery, patient is doing well, and it was uh, already almost seven years, and she has no other complaints and deny any changes in the medical history. The second case, which was unfortunate, was uh, finished by the death of the patient due to this neoplasm. It's a patient, uh, 54 years old female, which was admitted in outside institution with complaints on the gradual right arm swelling and pain which progressed to the point where she could uh, bear move her arm and she had started having uh, different lesions on her chest wall. The biopsy of these lesions diagnosed uh, anaplastic large T-cell lymphoma, which was ALK negative, and bilateral breast implants were removed. Unfortunately, only partial capsulectomy was performed at that time. She was treated with chemotherapy twice, but unfortunately, the disease progressed. Then patient decided to transfer her care to MD Anderson Cancer Center and PET scan, which was performed here, show extensive uh, progression of disease, which involved chest wall, lung, and lymph nodes. The bone marrow biopsy show the involvement as well, and allergenic uh, bone marrow transplant was performed. But unfortunately, patient uh, had multiple relapses. And after the last one, she passed away. So it's always great to have dichotomy in the outcome so that you can kind of look at the differences between them. One was younger, one was older, one had a complete capsulectomy, the other one did not. So can you, can you tell us a little bit more about the entity from the point of view of, you know, why these women, you know, is it this particular type of implant? Um, are there predispositions genetically? Just fill us in a little bit more about the, the details of the entity as far as not necessarily recognizing it, because I think we'll get into that a little bit later, but like the, almost like the epidemiology or why this happens. Can you, can you elucidate that for us? These are very rare lymphomas. Having said that ALCL on its own, even systemic ALCL is a rare lymphoma. And breast implant associated type is even less frequently seen. So our data so far is limited to large case series or case reports, but there is no really genetic predisposition that I've seen in the literature. It can happen in 
different types of breast implants, including saline or silicone. Last studies show there's no real difference between these two. And historically, there used to be more smooth surface implants than they were thought they were more complicated with ALCL than than the rough surface implants. But studies show that there's not really any difference between these two types. So right now in the United States and North America, it's mainly smooth surface and some other parts of the world, rough surface implants are being used. Probably the pathogenesis is related to chronic inflammation and uh, reaction to surface and fibrous capsule and ongoing inflammation to a foreign body in the breast area. To elucidate that a little bit further, you said it's rare from the point of view of either number of women who have breast implants or people who have complications. Is there is there a rate or is it just really, is, or is there cases per year number? How rare is the entity? It's pretty rare. So it's actually, you can call by numbers like several hundred cases. So it's not a very common lymphoma in uh, breast implant patients. Can you talk a little bit about what sort of approach, diagnostic approach we would take for these sort of cases? The diagnostic approach starts with the clinical examination for the patients coming with symptoms related to breast implants, which are most often enduration in the breast with or without a mask, usually due to effusion around the implant. Then radiology studies might be helpful to detect the mass and or effusion um, around the implant. Then usually we receive a piece of the capsule or whole capsule, depending on the surgical decision. But sometimes we we might get cytopathology specimens too. So there are different approaches to these specimens, of course. Once once we receive the specimen tissue-based specimen. If there is a clinical concern for lymphoma, most tissues stand for flow cytometry. So that's a very helpful tool for us to determine if there's a any aberrant T-cell marker expression or in some flow cytometry panels, CD30 expression to indicate this kind of process going on in the tissue. Most cases will come without any mentioning of lymphoma and may just not submit it for flow cytometry. So we have immunostochemistry, but before that, by morphology, the most common morphologic findings is large cells, just like in in any ALCL cases, in a plastic large T-cell lymphoma. So these cells are often large with vesicular chromatin, can be hallmark or in a plastic morphology, and they can be in the luminal capsule or they can be just involved in the capsular wall. Then we do our immunophenotyping with flow cytometry and or immunostochemistry. And CD30 is positive in all cases in majority of the tumor cells. It's the definition of an aplastic large cell lymphoma. Majority of the cases up to 80% are CD43 positive. It can be null type with no T cell expression. So ALCL is already a very difficult diagnosis to make. And we rely on the CD30 in most cases. But CD43 is a reliable marker for the T-cell lineage. CD4 is going to be expressed in majority of the cases again. TIA and Granzyme B and EMA and less frequently CD3 and CD8 in some cases. Following these immunosochemical studies, 
we know that we have a CD30 positive T cell lymphoma and it's implant associated. So it's an implant associated in a plastic large T cell lymphoma. Of course, we will do our routine studies, including ALK and FISH studies, and ALK is negative in all cases. So these cases do not express ALK antigen. And for FISH, although some ALK negative systemic ALCL cases express or carry rearrangement of DUS22 or TP53 rearrangements, pretty much all cases and breast implant associated ALCL, these markers are negative. This is the basic approach to, to this disease for diagnostic purpose. So just to summarize, thank you so much. That was really detailed. And I think our audience will understand it more than I will. <laughs> but just to summarize it, so it sounds like you recognize that you have a large T-cell lymphoma around a breast implant You perf- that's CD30 positive. You perform ALK and you perform FISH, and those are negative. And then you're comfortable saying this is breast implant associated ALCL. Does that sum it up? Yes, based on the, of course, if, if you have just scattered CD30 cells, I would be very hesitant, but you need to have a T-cell infiltrate that is large and in a plastic looking by morphology, and pretty much all cells are CD30 positive, and hopefully you will have the T-cell lineage marker at this CD43 just to determine that this is a T-cell lymphoma, and some other T-cell lymphoma-related markers, including CD4, NTIA, and Granzyme B. As you mentioned in your cases, Krill, there were definitely certain clinical signs that these women kind of showed at presentation. So if I'm a woman with a breast implant, is what sort of signs do I need to be looking for? Is there particular aspects of that that these, these type of cases have in common? Yeah. So this type of lymphoma should be suspected uh, in patients with uh, effusion occurring more than a year after implant placement and can be confirmed cytology examination and uh, by cytopathologist or this specimen can be sent uh, for flow cytometry and after biopsy it can be evaluated by microscopic examination or the capsule that's basically how we can make this diagnosis or suspected So both of you mentioned cytology. So can you explain the role of cytology in in the initial sort of, you said, detection and obviously potentially in the diagnostics because you can send that directly for flow. Can you just talk us through what what you can and can't do with cytology for this particular disease and entity? Diagnosis of lymphoma is is overall a difficult task for pathologists, and we all prefer tissue, preferably large tissue, not only incisional tissue, but excisional tissue. However, if there's a possibility to perform flow cytometry and or immunohistochemistry on FNA samples or cytology samples, that might be very helpful to direct to the correct diagnosis. However, I would be very hesitant, even, even though there is a CD30 positive population in a small cytology specimen with really limited cells. Personally, in my practice, I usually diagnose these as CD30 positive considering these are all CD30 positive large cells. CD30 positive T-cell lymphoproliferative process, you can call it suspicious or compatible with or consistent with based on your comfort level and based on the tissue and recommend incisional or preferably excisional biopsy for more definitive diagnosis. So I would be hesitant to 
just call it out just by cytology. I would prefer to just to examine the whole tea tree if possible. And most patients go for resection anyway. Does clonality testing, molecular clonality testing, play any role in helping you at the cytology level, or do you do that even on the tissue level? Well, for clonality testing, Krell can answer this question to his the molecular fellow. Although it's a very sensitive test, it depends on how much yield you have in the cytology sample. And also some of these lymphomas are going to be negative by clonality, so mm-hmm. it may not be helpful. So it's not, a, it's not a test that we always rely on. Right. And so, Kirill, can you just comment on that in the history, in the cases that are published? Is, is clonality common? Is it uncommon with this disease? And how does that play a role? So the diagnosis of this neoplasm is uh, the pathway to the right diagnosis is supposed to consist of multiple parts. And uh, clinical history of uh, breast implants, especially with uh, texture, breast uh, silicone implants, it's very important. If we add here the right cytomorphology and uh, immunophenotype, which is CD30 positive, ALK negative, that would add to this diagnosis. Additionally, it's close to impossible to distinguish breast implant associated anaplastic large T-cell from ALK negative anaplastic large T-cell lymphoma if there is a history of this neoplasm. There is some improvements and some studies are showing, uh, for example, uh, deletion of chromosome 20 on this neoplasm, but some of them actually have it, some of them not. And there is no specific characteristics in molecular field right now which would give us this kind of support for diagnosis. So I would definitely agree with everything that Dennis said about this neoplasm. We need to be very careful when we make it. And of course, we need the full tissue, especially because we are not just diagnosing, we're supposed to grade breast implant associated in a plastic large T-cell lymphoma. And it's uh, still kind of uh, in a still new or uh, neoplasm, new diagnosis, and uh, a lot of things is still in development. And that we can actually see in uh, the difference of current WHO, hematopathology WHO, and uh, for example, breast WHO, the difference couple of years, but the amount of uh, information which was generated during uh, this period of time is massive. And we can see the development of our diagnostic approaches or information which we start uh, recovering or learn about uh, this entity. So let's talk about that a little bit. You kind of briefly touched on it there at the end, just the idea that Obviously, this is a relatively new entity, right? Because breast implants in the in the grand scheme of things are not, it's kind of a new thing. Can you talk a little bit about the history of this and um, maybe a little bit who, like, who published the first case and when? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's a very interesting topic. The history, I think history about any entity is very interesting and it's very uh, thought-provoking question. The story is indeed very interesting, but first I would like to ask you a question. 
where do you think the first breast augmentation surgery with using silicone implants was performed? Oh, I have no was idea. Like I had to Paris? guess it would be like California. I would, I would guess the United States, yeah. Okay, yeah. That's true, it's the United States. And uh, it's actually Houston. Yeah, it's another reason for me to be proud to get education here. Before talking about first diagnostic case about like uh, first uh, breast implant associated anaplastic large T-cell lipoma case, which was described, it's very important, I think, to talk about history of breast implant in general, and especially because there is some interesting stories behind it. So there was two Houston surgeons, uh, Thomas uh, Cronin and Frank Garrow. They performed first breast augmentation using a prototype of modern silicone implant. So the path to the modern breast augmentation surgery for using silicone implants was full of mistakes and disappointments. One of the first documented breast reconstruction surgery was performed by famous German surgeon, Vincent Gresny, in 1895. His patient was 41 years old singer who had a left breast defect due to previously removed tumor. I believe it was fibroadenoma. And this doctor decided to fulfill the unwanted space in breast tissue with lipoma, which patient had for years on her lumbar part of the back. It sounds fantastic that surgeon replaced one type of uh, tumor with another one from the same patient. So after this augmentation, where there were multiple doctors who were trying to mimic Dr. Gresney technique, but using different types of material like paraffin, glass balls, sponges, and even ox cartilages. These experimental uh, procedures had multiple terrible side effects, which is uh, infection with skin necrosis, pulmonary embolism, granulomas, severe organ failures, and even deaths. During Second World War, there was another trend of breast cosmetic procedure. It's injection of uh, industrial silicone directly into the breast. It was popular in Japanese sex workers who was trying to attract more U.S. soldiers as a customers. And of course, the consequences were terrific. Interestingly, that even in our days, some illegal medical providers are using the different chemicals and or liquid industrial silicone to perform cosmetic procedures, which cause similar side effects. Being a part of uh, University of Miami group, I published a manuscript which named the pulmonary empty spaces, silicone embolism, a decade of uh, increased incidence and its uh, uh, histologic diagnosis. And if you are interested, you can actually go and pull it from PubMed. It was about a similar case where a lady was injecting illegal silicone illegally into her body and end up to have a pulmonary embolism. In 1950s, another cosmetic procedure became popular. It's a the surgical implantation of different materials like uh, synthetic sponges, 
implanted uh, material was losing shape and become harder very soon after procedure. And finally, in 1962, Houston doctors performed the first breast augmentation using a prototype of modern silicone implant. The first patient was 29-year-old lady, the mother of six kids, and she came to a medical office to remove her breast tattoo and was offered to try breast augmentation as an addition to pin her ear back, the procedure she actually really wanted. <laughs> Interestingly, that most of uh, products uh, implanted in the human body in the United States oblige uh, to have uh, approval from uh, FDA. The original breast implants did not require it because FDA had no classified breast implants as a medical device. And it sounds like crazy right now, right? Right. Yeah. Let's just stick this in your body. Let's see what it does. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So, but that actually allowed these two Houston doctors to test breast augmentation with silicone implants directly on the human patients, like skip all these mouse works and so on. I think it's uh, be interesting to know the history of silicone breast implants uh, implantation from the first breast implant augmentation till nowadays. And I can talk about uh, the history from 1962. The breast implants were increasingly accepted, while the most uh, significant uh, complication was implant rupture. It was not lymphoma or breast implant associated in a plastic large cell lymphoma. Nobody even thought about that. And only in 1976, FDA implemented the medical device amendment, which started regulating the safety of medical devices. 15 years after breast implants were in already in use. So in 1988, the silicone implants were classified into class three category medical device, which require manufacturers to check the safety of these uh, materials then uh, inserted in women bodies. Uh, the silicone implants were taken off uh, the US market in 1992 due to concern for silicone breast implants were associated with increased autoimmune or rheumatologic disorders, as well as possibility of breast cancer. But there was nothing found and it was placed on market, back on market in 2006. So in 2010, the French manufacturer of poly implant process, it's a PIP, was found to use industrial grade instead of medical grade silicone in implant production a factor identified as a cause for the higher risk of leak and rupture. And uh, AAP was banned to sell implants and the founder of company was sent to jail. And recently, US FDA uh, requested a voluntary recall of certain texture implants and texture expanders, which had been... uh, linked to breast implant associated in a plastic large T-cell lymphoma. There are the same texture implants that were pulled from Europe market around two years ago. 57 years after the first surgery augmentation 
surgery, the breast implants continue to make headlines in the news. So additional interesting fact about the hospital where the first uh, surgery took place. I'm not sure if uh, our audience aware about this movie, uh, but uh, when I was a teenager, this movie was very popular. And the, the name of this movie is Robocop 2. Oh, Robocop. Yeah. Uh, okay. Yeah. So in the movie, they are saying that the place is, the city is actually Detroit, but in reality, they, it was shot in Houston. The place where the bad guys were making drugs, called Nuke, was rundown hospital, the same hospital where the first breast implant silicone implant surgery took place. The name of this hospital is uh, Jefferson Davis Hospital. It was built on a public Houston cemetery and operated from 1924 to 1938 and was the first centralized municipal hospital uh, to treat indigent uh, patients in Houston. The hospital was named after Jefferson Davis, former president of uh, Confederacy. After that, I just can't say that this uh, hospital, this building still exists. And now the building uh, has a new name. It's uh, actually used for people to live. So it's, uh, it's called Elder Street Artist Lofts. If somebody wants to know the history or about breast implants and so on, they can go there and see this hospital or like be obsessed with a Robocop movie. So <laughs> it's, it's kind of, yeah, it's uh, interesting, like through how many things this uh, place went through. Denise, tell us about any new developments in breast implant associated um, ALCA. What's in store for patients and pathologists in the future with this disease? Well, we believe that these are underdiagnosed diseases. Depending on the tumor burden, it may just overlooked by the by the pathologist, or just maybe effusion if it's not very prominent may not be alarming for the for the clinicians. Um, and I also want to add that CD30 expression is not specific to an aplastic large T and plastic large cell lymphoma. It can be seen in various reactive and other neoplastic conditions. So it becomes very challenging for the practicing pathologists, again, if they are especially dealing with a small size tissue. Once it's diagnosed, the good news is there's an excellent prognosis for these patients, especially when they are diagnosed in early stages. Having said that, I like to add breast implant can be seen in for cosmetic reasons or for reconstruction reasons for post-cancer treatment. So there's a slight difference, I believe, in the patients who are getting breast implants for cosmetic reasons versus reconstructive for the follow-ups and also imaging, more frequent imaging. So I think probably this, it might be out earlier for the reconstruction patients, cancer patients than the cosmetic patients. But once it's diagnosed in early stage, most times the treatment is pretty much surgical excision and these patients do well. For non-surgical treated patients or patients who are not suitable for surgical excision, there are treatment options which are in NCCN guidelines for patients. 
for the pathologists or as far as the new developments, we are still collecting data, as Krill mentioned. This is a disease still evolving with information. There are still unknowns. Maybe there are predisposing factors that we don't know well. So the more data collection and more studies will probably direct us to the right direction. Hopefully we can even determine if the patients are prone to having this diagnosis or not in the future after the implants are in place. We have all the techniques that we can use. They are helpful with immunosochemistry, molecular studies, so forth. But the pathologists need to be very, very, very careful when they are dealing with these type of specimens. And it should be always in back of their minds that could this be CD30 positive T-cell lymphoma? can accurately diagnose these cases. Yeah. Well, thank you guys so much. I think this has been really, really interesting and eye-opening for me. I love learning about new entities that I would never recognize on my own. So (laughs) thank you for that. I think that we've all learned a lot, certainly a lot of Houston trivia too from Crow, which is important. Yeah. And I just want to remind our listeners to uh, tell their colleagues about the Inside the Lab podcast and you can subscribe through your favorite podcast aggregator. Don't forget that you can receive CME or CMLE credit for listening to our podcast by looking for Inside the Lab in the ASCP store or on our website at www.ascp.org. Thank you, and we'll see you next time.